whoever that expert is, are they a good communicator? They should be able to explain the issues in the case better than I can. They should be able to do it clearly. They should be able to do it concisely and really in a way that a jury can understand. You're listening to Scott Harkey, a senior financial crimes prosecutor with the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. You've also got to engage them. You've got to make it personal. You've got to get them to say yes, not just logically through the numbers, but to say yes with their emotion. In this episode, we discuss the role of the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys, the role of forensic accountants as expert witnesses, the characteristics needed for a forensic accountant, and how financial crimes can affect vulnerable populations. He is a senior financial crimes prosecutor for the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. He's also a graduate of Campbell Law School and a board specialist in criminal law with the state of North Carolina. Scott Harkey, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thanks for having me, Robert. Thank you, Scott. I really do appreciate you giving me time. What compelled you to become a lawyer? Well, I think it was a combination of things. First, it was where my interest really steered me. I've always had a great reverence for our system of government and our system of laws, our constitutional republic. You know, I firmly believe we live in the greatest country of the world, and the opportunity to serve within that system is just an absolute blessing. Uh, Second, I think I've always had a thirst for learning, particularly learning new things. And as an attorney, we have to learn something new in every case that we have. And as an example, you know, in the white collar world, I get to learn about a victim business. I get to learn about their business structure, their products, their finances. So with every case, I'm able to learn something new. uh, And I have to learn something new because the facts of every case are really what lead us to the result. And I think lastly, Robert, is I get to help people. I think it's usually human nature for us as individuals to either run from issues and run from problems. But as attorneys, we sign up to deal with people's problems. And, you know, we're going to try and help them through it. And if we do our job correctly, we're going to help them. Sooner or later, you decided to become a white-collar prosecutor for the state of North Carolina. How did you decide that? So the financial crimes unit that I work for with the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys came into being around the end of end of 2012, early 2013. And at that time, I was working for a law firm in Raleigh, working in a civil litigation practice. But my background really throughout law school was working in the district attorney's office, working for the U.S. attorney's office in the Eastern District of North Carolina. And as I was working for that civil litigation firm, I was contacted about this opportunity. I was asked if I was interested, and I was. Uh, I went through that hiring process, and here I am eight years later. Did you have a business background before you became a white-collar prosecutor? Yeah, so I get asked that question a lot, you know, whether I have a business or a finance background, and I don't. I don't have that. You know, I'm not more formally educated, really, than any other attorney or lawyer across the state. So as a white-collar prosecutor, is that what you just specialize in for the state of North Carolina now? Yes, that's correct. So I do, you know, all the cases I work can really be described in broad terms as fraud cases, employment dishonesty cases, or public corruption cases. 
my experience with local district attorney's office is you typically will have five, six, ten, I guess, depending on the office size of various attorneys from various backgrounds that are what we call ADAs, assistant district attorneys, and because the district attorney is actually an elected position. How did you come about to where you are not assigned to a certain office, but yet you go across the state? Why would a district attorney want you when you're not in their office, is my, I guess my, is my question. Yeah, so good question. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, is the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys is created by statute. And we have a director, we have a staff, and we have different attorneys who specialize in different areas. There's 43 elected district attorneys throughout the, the state of North Carolina. Within their prosecutorial district, they, through the Constitution of North Carolina, have the authority to prosecute cases within that district. And that authority is theirs alone. Ultimately, what happens sometimes is cases come through their office that they need a particular specialist to deal with. And a lot of times, the white-collar cases are really voluminous. They're really complex. And they need help. Typically, as you mentioned, these DA's offices will have 10, 11 ADAs. You know, if you get to, to Charlotte-Mecklenburg, you're in excess of 100. They don't always have the resources to handle cases like this. So they need to make a formal request. They need to appoint me to handle the case. And then we go in and, and handle it for them. And hopefully we do that successfully. So you are really a statewide resource. That's exactly right. So what type of cases do you get called upon across the state to help prosecute? I handle large-scale complex embezzlements. I've handled Ponzi schemes, frauds against the government, public corruption cases involving government employees or elected officials. And we also handle conflict cases where that elected district attorney does have a conflict and they need somebody else to come in and be the prosecutor and make the decisions for that particular case. Give an example of a, uh, of a conflict. Sure. So if there is a... Uh, for example, somebody they represented in the past, or for example, somebody who they have a political relationship with or a familiar relationship with of that nature, or they just for some reason really don't feel like they can approach that case in an unbiased nature or even without something that may create the appearance of impropriety. A lot of times they'll want us to come in as somebody who doesn't have any of those relationships. We come in from the outside we make all the decisions in the case so that everything's above board and the case is handled ethically. Because I mean, if you're traveling across the state and there are 43, I think you said 43 district attorney's offices, is this something they ask you to come on the front end, on the tail end, and are you running the grand jury process? How does that in particular work? So typically, you know, and in a perfect world, we do get the referral on the very front end. Law enforcement will have reached out to the elected district attorney. The elected district attorney will be aware of an investigation that's of a white collar or very complex nature, and they will get my office or me involved very, very early on. That's not always the case, but that is usually the case. And then I will work the case with the State Bureau of Investigation, Department of Insurance or the local law enforcement agency or whoever the agency is that's assigned to, to investigate the case. And I'll be able to work with them hand in hand through that investigative process 
ultimately either resulting in a decision not to prosecute the case or uh, a decision to go forward through the grand jury process. Because you are a statewide resource, I'm assuming you're on the road quite a bit, before COVID, of course, you're on the road quite a bit, so you're actually traveling three or four hours, I'm assuming spending the night meeting with the prosecutors and investigators and looking at the evidence? Pre-COVID days, I would tell folks my week usually consists of two to three days in the office, and then the other two to three days would be on the road traveling, which is, to be honest, it's a great balance because I'm not stuck in the office or stuck in the courtroom all the time. I'm able to get out. I'm able to see different parts of the state, see how things are done in different districts. And so that for that, that's very refreshing. Being a white-collar prosecutor, what training do you receive or what continuing education do you receive in order to stay up to speed regarding tools or techniques or law when it comes to prosecuting state crimes? I don't have any additional continuing legal education requirements that, that I have to meet each year. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I don't have a finance background, but I have had the opportunity to work for the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys, and we're responsible for training prosecutors throughout the state uh, of North Carolina, and I like to think that we do a very, very good job of it. So there are a lot of tools and resources that I can use really in-house when it comes to training and experience. But I've also had the opportunity to participate in trainings throughout the state and in other parts of the country as it relates particularly to white-collar cases. You know, I can think of one, you know, one training I went to back in 2013, shortly after I started this job. It was through the National District Attorneys Association, and it was, it was a training called Managing the Complex Case by David Cole, who was an attorney out of Utah. And that was probably one of the, you know, one of the first trainings I went to when I had this job. And it was just a great practical training on how to do your housekeeping with a complex case up front, how to prepare a case in an organized way, and then the logistics of managing that complex or voluminous case and, and getting it to a jury in a practical way. Based upon my experience, and this is not a criticism of law enforcement community in general by no means, Many of your detectives, locals, do not have a financial background to make them very comfortable with these complex, large cases. It's just because they don't have an accounting background, that type of nature. And it's just part of the job where if it becomes voluminous and, and complex, they'll need to reach out and they need some type of help. How do you get your experts to help you explain complex financial crimes, because ultimately, at the end of the day, the audience is going to be a judge and it's going to be a jury. How do you get that from complex and maybe a local detective is not that versed into it to get it in front of a jury to where the story can be told? Yeah. So you, you mentioned law enforcement. I mean, they only have as many resources as they have, right? Right. Um, in, in my view, they're underappreciated, they're underpaid, and they're overworked. You know, these folks don't always have the time to go deal with this complex financial crimes case when they're dealing with murders and rapes and robberies, et cetera, all the time. I mean, it's just extraordinarily difficult for them to take on as an individual or as an individual detective. And so it's a lot of times it's very important to have uh, somebody with an accounting background who can come in, who can look at the material, 
who can do a good job, really put that together and present it to law enforcement and to the prosecution in really a way that is going to help us whenever we're preparing our case and then ultimately whenever we're presenting our case. You know, when I deal with forensic accountants, one of the first things that I ask myself is, have they done a good job, right? Because I'm not going to use them if they haven't. I mean, I've had several that I didn't feel like it necessarily benefited my case the way that they put everything together. And I'm not going to put somebody on the witness stand who I don't believe is going to help my case. They have more cons than pros or more errors or items that I really need to correct or explain away than benefits that they bring to my case. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to play defense on owning your prosecutor, that's for sure. <laughs> that's exactly right. That happens very rarely. But ultimately, if that forensic accountant or, or CPA, whoever that is, you know, certified fraud examiner, whoever that expert is, they need to be most importantly, I think to me as a prosecutor, and you brought it up just a little bit, was are they a good communicator? They should be able to explain the issues in the case better than I can. They should be able to do it clearly. They should be able to do it concisely and really in a way that a jury can understand what is going on and ultimately in a way that leads them to say yes to the case that I'm prosecuting. How do you find these people? If the local police department or sheriff's office does not have either time, resources, or the expertise in that, how do you find these people to help you? Because ultimately, somebody has to get on the witness stand and explain all this, and it's not going to be you. So how do you find these people to do this? You know, there are several methods. Often, if it is the agent that we have handle it, that's great. But sometimes we even, even if we have an agent with an accounting background, we'll have a case where an accountant has also looked at the materials. And, and we usually reach out to professional organizations or um, and law enforcement typically who does that, or we will have the victim say the victim business in a particular case will have hired an accountant to go through the material and to ultimately see what's going on, prepare a report, prepare everything, and provide it to us. Let's talk about the victim for a second. If the victim decides to hire their accountant to look into this, do you not, and this is not, a, this is just, a, I'm just curious, most people become accountants because they're introverts. Let's be honest with you. They're, they're CPAs or introverts to be nature. To be cross-examined in a law and order courtroom type thing just freaks people out. How do you know or balance out where they you know, the victim hires a CPA or an accountant to look at it? But yet, I guess the question would be, how do you evaluate them as a witness? Because just because they can do the work doesn't mean they're going to hold up very well in the witness stand. How do you balance that or do you? I think it's up to the victim to hire who, you know, I don't want to go too far in telling them who they have to hire and who they necessarily need to pay. Hopefully they've made a good decision. And if we feel like they haven't, we can always make application uh, through our courts to have an expert hired who we feel would be good and effective in presenting the materials. So yeah, I mean, that's a really a difficult question to answer. I'll just put myself in, the, in a business owner's shoes. Oh yeah, I got my bookkeeper, my accountant to take a look at that. And they can explain, they could probably find out how the, how the money was embezzled. But this person, frankly, is not an A witness, not even a B witness, could be a C witness if you want to grade them because they're just not, they're not going to come across as the best witness that you can find to promote that evidence is my point. And I wasn't sure if you had to have 
difficult conversations going, well, yeah, the information is great, but your accountant is just not going to handle handle very well the distress on the witness stand. I, I wasn't sure if you had this type of conversation you needed to have or not. I don't, I don't, I didn't know. That's what I was asking. And maybe it's just me as a prosecutor. I feel really confident in how I'm going to prepare the witnesses when we discuss the questions that I'm going to ask prior to a trial. I think more for me is the data, how they prepared it. I think one of the challenges that I often see when a victim has hired either through their private counsel or just on their own, a forensic accountant, is the way that it's prepared. It may be prepared in a way that's helpful to show damages in a civil trial. That's not necessarily the way that it's going to help me in a criminal trial. Or it may be prepared to look at loss in a certain way. That is not the loss or even something that's going to be relevant or admissible in my criminal case. And so sometimes you know, one of the barriers we have is we're not necessarily speaking the same language when it comes to the report and how it's prepared. Sometimes they'll make assumptions in a particular re- report that just aren't really based on fact, but just based on how they do their job. I, I don't even know. I mean, you folks are the accountants, but sometimes just things will be there where I'm, me as a prosecutor, I'm like, well, why did we do that? Or the numbers don't quite add up. So I think it's always just really helpful for us early on in the investigative stage to be on the same page with whoever that counted is as we go through it so they can understand what, what we're looking at as prosecutors at the end of the day. Completely understand. If we, if we were on a Zoom call, you'd see me nodding my head quite a bit because I know exactly what you're talking about because there's, the yeah. burden of proof is different. In a civil case, right. the burden of proof is a preponderance of the evidence, but in, in criminal court, it's proof of beyond a reasonable doubt. And many times, you may have a $100,000 loss 80,000 of it may be preponderance of the evidence, maybe 20,000 is beyond a reasonable doubt, but you can only put 20, the 20,000 beyond a reasonable doubt in there because it's, it's all, that's, that's the burden of proof that you got, and you can't throw something in there that's not going to meet the threshold. You know they're guilty of it. You just, you just don't have the evidence or you don't have the extra piece of the puzzle to bring to court to meet that burden of proof. Absolutely. And you you said it, you nailed it. I mean, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, that is proof that fully satisfies and entirely convinces every one of those jurors. And so when we're dealing with a criminal case, contrary to how civil case may be approached, where you're going after every single dollar you can find, for us, a lot of times is we need to go after the low-hanging fruit. And we need to take what we think we have that we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt and let's not stretch it. Exactly. Let's not roll the dice on some other stuff that may end up hurting the cases that we're really, really sure about, right? Yep. You can easily muddy up the waters for a defense could go out there and say, what about this and what about that? And so the jury's focusing on this small item that, frankly, is a distraction to everything else. That's exactly right. It could do more harm than good, yep. you know, at the end of the day. What do you look for in a witness to explain complex issues? What are some of the characteristics? If you are if you want a forensic accountant on the stand, you talked about how what I call count the beans. But what do you look for regarding other characteristics? They need to be a good communicator. They should be able to explain these issues to the jury. They need to do it in a way that the jury can understand it. But also, when I call a witness to the witness stand that's particularly someone with an accounting background, 
I'm going to tender them as an expert witness. They're going to provide some sort of opinion. Just as a prosecutor, when I'm in that line of questioning, the spotlight at that moment is going to go on that witness. It does not need to be on me. It needs to be 100% on that witness because they're the star of the show for that however many hours or days or whatever it is that they're on that witness stand. And so I need to do the best that I can as a prosecutor to get out of the way, but at the same time, lead them in the direction we need to go. They need to be presentable. They need to be somebody who's going to do a great job, who the jury's going to like, who the jury's going to understand, and probably most importantly, who the jury's going to trust. The difference between a fact witness, which would be, I wrote out the check to this person, and versus an expert witness. Tell me the difference between the two. Typically, a fact witness is going to be someone with some sort of percipient knowledge of the conduct, whether that's circumstantial evidence or whether it's direct evidence. They're going to be someone who had some sort of experience who's going to recite facts for the jury. Whenever we talk about having the expert witnesses take the stand, they're not people who experience. They're not lay witnesses. They didn't experience exactly what transpired. And they were, in fact, no part of it a lot of times when we're talking about accountants. So what they're doing is they're analyzing the facts. They are taking those facts and using reliable principles and data and methods, applying them to those, and then ultimately rendering an opinion that in some way is going to help the jury make their determination. When you are picking and choosing your expert witness, you can't go to the next door neighbor and say, hey, you got a bookkeeping background. Why don't you be my expert witness? You're going to need somebody with a little more credentials behind them. What are the, I don't want to use the word minimums, but I guess I'll use the word minimums for argument's sake. What is something that you definitely have to have, something you really look are looking for, credential-wise or experience-wise? Yeah, I think the qualifications, right? What are their, what is their background? You know, we look at whether they're a certified fraud examiner, whether they're a CPA, what do they have? What qualifications, what training and what experience do they have is probably the most important thing to me at the outset. Beyond that, I look at what have they done uh, within their profession? Are they someone who, who has written on particular topics? Are they someone who has, who's a professor in that area? How, you know, how many speaking engagements have they given? How many cases have they worked on? How many times have they testified? Who did they testify for? Those sorts of things. Ultimately, the audience is going to be the judge and the jury, but you have to get past the judge and with his qualifications. You have to have them say, I approve to be on the witness stand, correct? That's correct. Yeah. We don't formally have to tender our witnesses in state court, but we certainly, in order to get them to provide an opinion, we have to have them qualified as an expert and something that's going to pass the test that the judge is going to allow. So the qualifying opinion, is this something that has to be a written report? Because I'm assuming cause the defense has to know who you're putting up there on the witness stand and what they're going to pine about. So how does that work in, in just in general? Yeah, so we are required under our discovery laws in state court to not only provide a written report, also what the expert has relied on. We have to provide the expert's CV that shows their background and all of their experience. And then we have to give notice to the defense that says, hey, we're going to call this individual as an expert in our case. In a nutshell, the defense knows exactly what they're getting up there, who they are, and what they're going to say in general. 
Absolutely. Yep. They're going to be well in advance of trial prepared to know who's going to be testifying and what they're going to be testifying about. Now, do you ever have a chance or have a situation where you have competing a duel between experts? Not in trial. Um, We've had those in the pre-trial stage, but to be honest, it is not that often that I even necessarily know about it. So the defense in state court, let's just say they have an expert, right? And the expert analyzes the documents that we've provided in discovery. If that analysis doesn't necessarily favor the defense, that's not something that they're going to disclose to me. That's going to be their work product. And if they choose to use it at trial, you know, as a matter of reciprocal discovery, they will need to produce that to me, provide me notice of the expert, and let me know that they were going to call them. But oftentimes they'll hire an expert and I won't even know it because the facts may bear out not in their favor. Right. So if they hire their own expert and the defense expert agrees with the prosecution expert, well, they're not going to bring that on the stand. They're not going to agree with their prosecution for sure. They're going to keep that quiet. That's exactly right. What are some of the challenges do you see in the next five years in state court regarding white-collar prosecutions? In regard to white-collar prosecution or even really, I guess, litigation in general, our system is going to have to keep up with the advances of modern-day technology, advances of modern-day society. I mean, we've moved into an era where data has become just one of the most valuable resources, uh, whether it's financial data, whether it's personal data. And we're so connected, really, in everything that we do. And our court system and structure is really not designed to efficiently wade through all of this, right? That's why experts are, are so important. I mean, our system is really light years behind when it comes to I think efficiently presenting a lot of data and doing it in an effective way. So I think the next five years are going to be important for us to catch up. Going to have to catch up from the post-COVID era, and and we're going to have to catch up in a system that seemingly always lags behind. Because technology moves at the speed of light, for sure, literally around the world. How do you handle cases that? go across state lines. And the reason why I was asking that, because nothing, nothing's going to be state of North Carolina only. I mean, there's going to be victims maybe in Virginia or, or evidence in Virginia. How do you handle that? You know, it's difficult. Uh, it's difficult to answer because it's probably a different answer for different issues. For example, if we have an embezzlement case in the state of North Carolina, and let's just say the company is located in, in Raleigh, you know, if they are embezzling money or, or spending money across state lines or even in a different country for that matter, jurisdiction and venue is going to be proper in Wake County, North Carolina, because that's where the, the business was located and they have a duty to account at that business there in Wake County, then I think we're fine. But if you talk in terms of the ability to get witnesses from out of state, that's always pretty difficult, right? We need to go apply for a material witness order or something of that nature. Or if you're talking about another crime, there's always a question of whether and where venue is appropriate. I guess it really just depends on the facts, depends on the case, depends on the pieces of evidence that we need to put together and how we're going to do that. What I was trying to get to is, number one, you mentioned that the evidence could be in a different state or the witness could be in a different state. But what about if there is the loss is split? between maybe out of Raleigh and then maybe out of, let's say, Washington, D.C. You prosecute a case that maybe it's a $100,000 loss, literally, but 50 of it's in, let's say, in Raleigh, 
in 50% of it in Washington, D.C., do you bring in all 100000 into Raleigh, or do you show the $50,000 in Raleigh only? I, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's still hard to say without knowing the particulars of a case, you know, whether there's concurrent jurisdiction or concurrent venue, whether that's allowable. You did bring up the $100,000 figure, which is at least in the white collar world on the state level. That's, I don't know if you intentionally did it, but that's an important number. If we hit $100,000 or more, we're in a different sentencing class and that sort of thing. So we're going to try and find an avenue as a prosecutor to, to reach that threshold. At least for me, if I'm faced with a situation like that, I'm going to do my best to put all the loss wherever I'm going to prosecute it, because I think it's, it's just more efficient to prosecute one case than have to do two. In a sentencing phase in federal government, they have something called relevant conduct, where the judge can take consideration everything someone's did, no matter when they did it, for the most part. It could be in California, but the case is tried in North Carolina, and it's a North Carolina crime, but if it's in federal court, he can take the loss in California in consideration for his sentencing. Does a state court have that same type of consideration when it comes to sentencing from the, from their guidelines? You know, we don't have a particular provision like you do in federal court for relevant conduct, but, you know, we certainly do have, you know, we have structured sentencing in North Carolina, but within that structured sentencing, the court does have broad discretion and what the court will consider. And we also have aggravating factors in North Carolina that, that we present uh, as prosecutors. There's also mitigating factors that the defense will present in making their decision. And that's generally speaking, that's what we're guided by are what, what are the aggravating factors? What are the mitigating factors? And that's typically what's presented. And there's really a less, less of a focus in state court on the relative, relevant conduct. Tell me about a case that you're most proud of or something that made a difference in your career. It was a case out of Robeson County, and the county seat down there is Lumberton. The elected district attorney at the time was Johnson Britt, and he asked me to come in and prosecute a case where he had 44 different victims who were the victims of a manufactured home scheme by a gentleman by the name of Bradley McMillian. Basically, what Bradley would do is he would post for sale listings for these manufactured homes online somewhere, whether it was Craigslist or or wherever. And these victims would ultimately reach out to him. He'd invite them to his business or to his home. He'd show them, you know, this nice, shiny, new manufactured home on the computer screen or show them maybe sometimes one that was on the lot that he had outside. And ultimately, the victim would agree to buy it. They'd either pay a large down payment or they'd pay full price. So Bradley would take anywhere from $1,000 to $25,000 from these victims And then he'd agree to deliver it to them. Collectively, these 44 victims provided Bradley with approximately $450,000. In return, he provided them with nothing. These victims would follow up, you know, once the home was to have been delivered. uh, And he would always respond to those follow-ups by saying something that provided them with some false hope. Say, well, it's on the way or the trailer broke down. Weeks and months would go by and nothing would happen. And so I had the case. I I looked at the case. I went and met with all the victims, spoke with all of them. We ultimately made a plea offer to the defendant. Uh, He declined it. I mean, we proceeded the case and pushed the case toward a trial. He ultimately fired his lawyer, tried to get his old deal back. And kind of on the eve of trial, he said, I want to do that plea we were talking about. And 
And I said no. Ultimately, he didn't go to trial, though. He pled guilty as charged. Uh, We didn't give him any benefit, and we went straight to a sentencing hearing. And it was a hearing where the judge, based on how the offenses played out, you know, the judge could have given him a probationary sentence, or he could have given him several years in prison as a result of his conduct. And, you know, the reason this case was really so near and dear to me is because of the people that I was able to help. I mean, this was a financial crime. He took money at the end of the day. And if we just say, hey, he just took money, right? It's just money. Then it doesn't really seem like a whole lot. But these victims were probably some of the most vulnerable people that I've ever had the ability to come in contact with. They were some of the most vulnerable in the state of North Carolina. And they were also good people. I mean, these were people who had either no job or they had low-paying jobs. These were people and these were victims who were former military members. And they gave this man their life savings so that they could have a small roof over their head. Never forget one of the victims when I was meeting with them before the plea. He was telling me how he had a wife and they had a young child. And then his wife was also pregnant at the time that they were had given this man their savings so that they could have a small roof over their head. And they ended up sleeping in his small car. Um, They slept together every night. Him having to tell me while he's crying about the anxiety, about the heartbreak and about the stress in his life, having to tell me about his wife who had miscarried as a result of all that. And as really a result of the defendant's greed. So to this victim and to that victim, as well as many others in the case, it wasn't just money. He stole this man's comfort. He stole these victims' security. He stole their opportunity. And there's not many things that are more disgusting than that. Ultimately, we proceeded with that uh, sentencing hearing. Things didn't go very well for the defendant. He received 16 consecutive sentences. Eight of those were active. And luckily, the victims were in the courtroom to see it happen. You know, one thing that I'd never seen done before in my career as a prosecutor is after the judge banged that gavel and sentenced him to a lengthy prison sentence, you know, all those victims stood up in the courtroom. They cheered, applauded, they whistled. And it was just whatever. It was just that day, right? I mean, nobody in the courtroom cared. The bailiffs didn't care. The judge didn't tell them to be quiet. They had their small glimpse of justice that day. And I'm glad that I was able to help those people as a prosecutor, you know, help those people who couldn't help themselves. And thankfully, the defendant sits in prison to this very day. That is actually a great story, Scott. I appreciate you sharing that with us. It's one thing, and I've, I've, talked about this previously with with other guests before and privately and most publicly. If I go down the street and I get assaulted, I could probably heal that broken arm or leg or whatever else it is. But if you took my life savings away, especially if if my income level is is or the ability to earn income is is extremely low or that starts really that's that's a lifelong suffering I had to go through because I lost now everything I've worked for for 50 years. It really is, and it's it's just more devastating. A lot of a lot of it comes with dignity as well as uh, embarrassment, you know, to to lose your money to really a swindle. And they're not even being greedy; they're just trying to just do the basics of trying to live and have a roof over their head, like you're, like you talked about. Yeah, I mean, the harm in these cases is greater than just financial. You know, yeah. we see that it's harm that lasts for a long time, and it's harm that's taken something from somebody that it took them a long time 
to attain. And then again, on the the other side of it, these defendants, not just an assault, you know, it's not just a, a moment in time where a defendant or an individual has just made a mistake, right? They assaulted someone, they snapped, something happened, and they had a bad 15 seconds of their life. Typically, the defendants in these cases, these crimes last for years. The deception, the deceit, what they do, the decisions that they have to make day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they last for so long. And so in a lot of ways, these crimes can really be that much more disappointing and in some ways disgusting. Do you know what the defendant did with the money? A lot of the victims gave him cash. So it was a, a difficult situation for us on the prosecution side to really show where the money went. We could certainly prove that the money was passed, but what he did with the money, that was one of those cases where it was just really, really hard for us to figure that out. It's one thing to give someone the money and promise to do a service or deliver a product and they went belly up and bankrupt and you just kind of lost your their down payment. It's another thing where there's willfulness where you guys just takes the money, lies about it and just spends it on his own. I was kind of curious if there's what he, what, what he actually do with the money. His lifestyle was, was also so much different than the victims. It's funny. I, I actually rode by his house where the defendant lived before the sentencing hearing. I wanted to be able to say what his house looked like. And it was a big four bedroom house, two car garage, had the picket fence around it. He was obviously living a completely different lifestyle than the people he took advantage of. So I'm sure some of the money went there, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it didn't matter for the judge. So, Regarding restitution, how does state court deal with restitution? Is there a court order or judgment? How does that work? And does the court have the ability uh, later on to start clawing back and selling his assets and forfeiting them in order to pay victims? We don't have the mechanisms in place in the state of North Carolina to, to go for that clawback. We really don't have a lot of uh, ability, except in small circumstances, to seize and freeze assets of a defendant at particular phases of the case. All we can do, you know, as prosecutors, we can ask for judgment for restitution. Sometimes that's made part of the criminal case, and it, that's just a criminal judgment that they would be obligated to pay. There's not a whole lot behind that. Uh, in some instances, if the case fits, we can ask for a civil judgment uh, on behalf of the victims for whatever restitution they are owed. Does that give the victim some type of standing to where they can get their own, let's say, private legal counsel and start proceedings against maybe the house or other assets in order to get paid? Or are they relying upon the court to do this to get paid? Yeah, so it would it would already put them in a position as if they had sued them civilly for the same conduct. They had already had either a jury trial or a judgment entered by the court to where there's a civil judgment for whatever that restitution number is. Then at that phase, it would be up to the victim to ultimately recoup on that civil judgment, you know, recover that civil judgment. And they would, yeah, they would have to hire counsel and, and go through that process to try and find money and then ultimately um, get the money through that judgment. What do you wish you had known before you started being a white collar prosecutor? I think it's really hard starting out to have a good gauge and a good pulse for certain things within your profession when you start whatever that profession is. As a lawyer, what's a reasonable resolution? What's a reasonable argument to make? 
I think starting out as a lawyer, you could be timid. You could lack some confidence when it comes to not knowing that because you don't have that gauge. You don't have that pulse. I guess for me, I don't think I ever really lacked confidence on the outside. It may have just been on the inside. <laughs> um, but you know, Fake it till you make it. <laughs> that's right. But you know, good judgment comes through experience. You know the law, and if you know the facts, and you've worked harder than the other side, then you're in a pretty darn good spot. And you can be confident in however you decide to proceed, whatever decision is you make about a particular case, because you know the case better than anyone else in the courtroom. That would be what I wish I knew and and probably my advice. Looking back on your career, what is the biggest mistake or lost opportunity? I would just say probably just the small things, right? And I've made mistakes. I'm going to keep making them because I'm human. But, you know, in the past, I've made mistakes in in maybe how I dealt with someone, whether it was a victim or whether it was another attorney. I've made mistakes in the negotiation process, and I've made mistakes in trial where I looked at a piece of evidence. And to me as a lawyer, it wasn't necessarily significant, but to the jurors, it was. That comes with experience because you're like, really? You focused on this? But you know what? It was important to them. It It just rang their bell for some reason. I understand. That's right. Yeah, I yeah, understand. For whatever reason. Yeah, they bring their own experiences into the jury box. Those experiences are different than mine. And so they're going to view things differently. Things like that, those are not necessarily things I regret. They're learning opportunities. I've learned more from the cases I've lost probably than the cases that I've won at the end of the day. Interesting to say that when I was criminal investigator for 20 years with the IRS, one of the things I always looked for is, if I'm sitting in that box, what would make my head shake go, uh-huh, uh-huh, I understand mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. that's what kind of like how I approached my cases in many ways. And one of the cases I had, a lady was embezzled employment taxes. Now, employment taxes are the taxes that are taken out of people's paychecks. But it really is the government's money, sort of like sales tax. It's the government's money, you got to turn it over. It's, it's held in trust on behalf of the government, and you got to turn it over to the government. If you don't turn it over and spend it on yourself, that be, that's a crime. And it's called uh, uh, failing to turn over to payroll taxes. And one of the things I saw was on Facebook was this couple sitting in a gondola in Venice that was paid for by out of people's paychecks that was never turned over to turn Internal Revenue Service. And I knew I was sitting on a gold mine because I could talk about all day long about ah, about this, that, and the other. But when it comes to trial, showing that picture of them two sitting in a gondola would resonate tremendously well with a, with a jury because they can't go on vacation to Venice. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. And, 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 and I had a conversation with the attorney and he goes, yeah, that picture really kind of like uh, put us over the edge to plea because we knew very good and well, this is, this is not going to end well. Not at all. Yeah, yeah, no, and that that's great stuff, and that's great that you did that. I mean, I I've had well, for some reason a, a lot of embezzle embezzlement cases that I've had. You get pictures like that. They put things up on Facebook, and yeah, I've probably had half a dozen cases where shortly after a large sum of money has been taken from a victim, you see half a dozen or a dozen people out at, at Disney World, you know, on a $25,000 vacation or something like that. You oh, know, yeah. Those, those things are, they're, they're great for a case because, especially a white collar case, right? You're dealing with numbers and, and stuff that makes jurors brains hurt, yep. but you've also got to engage them. You've got to make it personal. You've got to get them 
to say yes, not just logically through the numbers, but to say yes with their emotion, you know? Yep. And those pictures, just like you described, I mean, those things are just great. They're, they're great, great tools in any case, uh, particularly a white collar one. It's one of those issues where, by golly, I can't do that. Neither should, neither should he be able to do that with stolen money. I mean, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I completely understand it. I always love this, getting those little tidbits of, of evidence out there and going, well, you know what? Uh, if the client wasn't pleading not guilty, that's fine. But we're going to show this, this, and this. This is going to be fun. This yeah. is going to be fun. Absolutely. Uh, all right, final four questions. You ready? Yes, sir. What is your biggest motivation now? I think on a personal level, my motivation every day is my family. You know, I want to do what's best for them. They're just so much of what I think about. And, you know, being a father, being a relatively new father, I want to teach my son all that I can teach him. I want to teach him principles. I want to teach him values. And really the best way I know how to do that is by example. Not only what I do on a day-to-day basis, but how I do it and how I approach it. I think in practice, my motivation to me is helping people who can't help themselves. I mean, some of the people I've had the opportunity to do things for, some of the people I work for to help now, they've gone their whole life and they've never had anybody stand up for them. They've never had anybody who's had their back, who's gone to war for them or gone to battle for them in a courtroom. To be a person who can do that, who has the tools to do that, that's really all the motivation that I need. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? Relatively recently, I read a book called The Power of Habit, and that was a book that really opened really opened my eyes as to how I am wired as a person, how we are wired as people, what my own habits are, how I can change them for the better. And it also really opened my eyes to a lot of how the world works, you know, to how large institutions, whether it be corporations, governments, study our habits. And they use those studies in such a way to influence us, to buy their product or to make a particular decision. That was a book that definitely gave me a different perspective on life. Share something that you have purchased in the last 12 months, less than $100, that you enjoyed or made your life easier. If it's good enough for Scott, it's good enough for the rest of the world. What would that be? This would not be something that is tangible, but it's more of an experience. Last week, I had the opportunity to do a Spartan run for the first time. I got together with some of my friends from high school. We had not seen each other in a long time. We all live in different cities, and it was just great. To go, you know, we we traveled, we were out in the desert, we did it about six and a half, seven miles, did obstacles. It's just a great experience. You know, I really enjoyed it. If you had to do something else, if you got fired today, you could no longer be a lawyer, no longer be a white collar prosecutor, what would you be doing? I think I'd probably be some sort of entrepreneur. I don't know. I, I just always had great admiration. I, I just admire people who take a leap of faith. They believe in a vision. They believe in their plan. They believe in their ability to have a pride and a passion for whatever that is. And as a result, they build something. I don't know what I would specifically be doing, but probably be somebody who's out there taking that leap of faith, putting my pride, putting my passion behind something and making the most of it. All right, Scott. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I do appreciate your time. Thank you for your service for the state and for your country and being a uh, prosecutor. I know it's it's not a glamorous job, but it's uh, but it can be very emotionally fulfilling. And I just want to say thank you so much for your time on the podcast and what you're doing for us in society. Yes, sir. Thank you, Rob, for having me.